When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who, when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. teach our children repentance and forgiveness, including that which we have received through Jesus. He was our only hope. He is our only hope. He is their only hope as well. Now, having made that message clear in 36, Alma is ready to move his son forward in 37, which is something of a passing of the mantle, since Helaman will very shortly become the one to bear that mantle moving forward. This is a lot like Mosiah chapter 1, as King Benjamin prepares his son Mosiah to bear the crown, to reign in his stead, but begins that passing of the baton with a passing of the plates. And just as Mosiah 1 focuses on scripture, so does Alma chapter 37. Almost everything in this chapter focuses on the word of God. He says in verse 1, My son Helaman, I command you that you take the records which have been entrusted with me. This is a sacred trust. Treat it as such. Verse 2, I command you that you keep a record of this people according as I have done upon the plates of Nephi and keep all these things sacred which I have kept even as I have kept them for it is for a wise purpose that they are kept. So keep the records that I've been keeping, add to them as I have added, this is ancient scripture, brass plates, along with modern scripture, gold plates, and keep all these things sacred. Now notice what he could have said. He could have said, now keep all these sacred things. I think that's often how we read it. Keep these sacred things. I'm now passing them on. It's like what we saw through the, the smallest of the small plates, Jerem and Omni. These are the sacred records. Now it's your turn to keep them. But as we saw in those little books, if you haven't seen that video, go back and watch it. It's fascinating what you see. It almost seems like the scriptural inheritance of the Nephite nation is being lost during that stage. If the Book of Mormon has a low point, as far as record keeping is concerned, it's in the Book of Omni, believe me. But they kept the sacred things. What they didn't do was keep the things sacred. They started seeing it more as a way of tracking genealogy rather than preserving the truths and mysteries and prophecies of God. And so I love how Alma says this to his son in verse two. Keep all these things sacred not just keep these sacred things. How do we keep things sacred so that they don't become the opposite of sacred? Profane. Not profane in terms of profanity, but profane in terms of outside of the area that God considers his own. Do we take certain things and make them mundane, commonplace? You want to go read, read an amazing conference talk? It's about eternal marriage, and it's by Elder F. Burton Howard of the 70. Almost the entire talk is a parable of sorts that you didn't even know was a parable until the very end. He talks about silverware. 
silverware that they saved up for throughout their years of marriage, adding a fork here or a spoon there, and treasuring those pieces of silverware, polishing them whenever there was a hint of tarnish, pulling them out on special occasions. It's an amazing, amazing parable. And at the very end, you realize he's been talking about marriage the whole time that you don't expose your marriage to the elements, that you don't treat it cheaply, that you treasure it, that you protect it and preserve it, that you polish it carefully and lovingly whenever a hint of tarnish starts to appear. It is a profound message, and it applies to so much more than marriage alone. I don't know if I know of a better example of a story about keeping something sacred. And I think it applies perfectly in this situation. Here are the plates, son. They're not just any old thing. They're not just pieces of scrap metal that we've scribbled on. These are God's words. See them as such. I remember reading once of a Jewish student at some kind of divinity school and was shocked at the way Christians treated their scriptures zipping them up in their little case, but putting the case on the floor under the desk to pull out other papers to be able to work on. In Judaism, there's even a hesitation to touch the scrolls that God's word is upon. They'll often have like a silver pointer, silver, like Elder Howard was talking about, to point along the page the words that they should be reading and reading reverently. To march around the synagogue with the scrolls a procession following the Word of God. What's the difference between a December 25th and any other day of the year? Nothing really. There's nothing inherently different about that day, right? I've actually joked with my wife saying, I wish we could trick our kids into not knowing what day of the year it is. We could celebrate Christmas on like, I don't know, the 30th or something and take advantage of all these post-Christmas day sales. We'd save a ton of money. It'd be awesome. Or times where we're so busy on a certain birthday or even our anniversary and we're like, it's okay, we'll postpone and we'll celebrate on a different day. Is celebration inherent to the day of the year or does it become attached to that day because the way we treat it, the way we look at it, the way we build up to it and prepare for it? How do we keep things sacred? It's been interesting lately to ponder that regarding the sacrament as more and more of us are participating in the ordinance of the sacrament in our own homes? Is it becoming at all mundane or commonplace for us? Or are we keeping that thing sacred? Well, in verse 4, he talks about it being passed down. It's been prophesied that it would, handed down from one generation to another, kept and preserved by the hand of the Lord, until all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people receive it, to know the mysteries that are contained thereon. But then in 5, he says an interesting thing. If they are kept, they must retain their brightness. Yea, and they will retain their brightness. Yea, and also shall all the plates which do contain that which is holy writ. Now, don't stop there. Keep going into verse 6. I think sometimes we pull out 6 by itself and quote it out of context, and it teaches a great principle as it stands alone. You can do that, but in context, I think it's fascinating. In verse 6, the part we always quote is, the end, by small and simple things are great things brought to pass, and small means in many instances doth confound the wise. Beautiful principle. God does accomplish great 
things. But he usually brings them about through small and simple means. But you see what he means by that in context? Because verse 6 begins with this statement. Now, ye may suppose that this is foolishness in me. But he defends this supposed foolishness by clarifying that small and simple things bring about great things. Wait, what? So what, what foolishness are you talking about? What specific small and simple thing did Alma have in mind? I'm not totally sure. But in verse 5, as you read leading up to verse 6, there's that talk about keeping things in such a way that they retain their brightness. Now, I don't know this for sure. But again, if he's dealing with brass plates, since brass is an alloy of copper and zinc, it does tend to tarnish. It doesn't rust, but it does tarnish when exposed to oxygen. And the oils on our fingers make it even worse. It accelerates that oxidation. Now, the golden plates, would they have had that problem? Gold doesn't rust. Gold doesn't tarnish. It doesn't react with air at all. It's one of the reasons it's so prized, right? Especially as a, as a symbol of purity. But because gold is so malleable, for it to actually retain its shape in anything, it's hardly ever pure gold. It usually is mixed with some other harder metal to make an alloy. And it's the other metal that does allow for some kind of rusting or tarnishing to occur, even in gold. Now, based on what Joseph Smith described as the weight of the golden plates and simply the fact that it would, they would maintain their shape and allow them to hold an engraving, then most likely the golden plates were some kind of an alloy as well. So I wonder if Alma is speaking literally here about brightness. Yes, I do believe that the spiritual analogy of this is very appropriate as well. That are we maintaining the spiritual brightness of God's word in our life? That's wonderful. But that doesn't seem foolish or small or simple. But polishing plates, getting out the cloth that are the cleaner, whatever they used to burnish that brass, to polish that gold. Now, if you think of something as simple as that can keep something sacred, that does seem a little foolish, a little contrived. It's like, come on, Dad, does it really matter? If the record itself, if the words on top of the plates, if that's what matters, then who cares if the brass gets a little greenish? Who cares if the gold loses a bit of its shine? Well, I think it's all part of that keeping sacred things sacred. Do I really have to get dressed up for church if I'm having it in my living room with my family? Well, it depends. What do you want church to feel like, even when it's taking place at home? Do I really have to put a white shirt and tie on to bless or pass the sacrament to my family members? Well, it depends. How do you want the ordinance to feel? To me, and I'm just speaking personally here, it feels different that even when it's my own child and it's the middle of the night and they're sick and they need a father's blessing, to go into my closet and put on a white shirt and a tie, to prepare myself physically, it might seem foolish I will admit it's definitely small and simple, but it does help me keep my mind in what is taking place. It does help me keep sacred things sacred. Whatever that looks like for you in your personal experience, things that others might consider foolish and that do admittedly look small and simple, great things are brought to pass. It allows us to keep things sacred. Speaking of the way scriptures are often treated in Judaism, I remember getting an email 
sent across the entire listserv from the Divinity School that I was attending at Vanderbilt. And it was from a fellow student that happened to be Jewish. And he was asking the campus community if they had seen his Bible. It was the Biblia Hebraica Stuttgartensia, to be specific, kind of a scholar's Bible that's all written in Hebrew. Now, I felt bad that he'd misplaced his study Bible. That's an expensive one, believe me. But it was what he said in his email that struck me. He said, I was going to use the restroom at the Divinity School, and I didn't want to bring my Bible into the restroom with me because it contains the name of God. And so I left my Bible outside the restroom on a shelf. And when I came out, it was missing. Do you understand what kept him from bringing it in? It wasn't even, well, I didn't want anything to happen to my scriptures. It was, this book contains the name of deity. And the restroom seems like such a profane place, such an ordinary, everyday, commonplace kind of surrounding. And I didn't want to bring God, his name, into that place. So please help me find my Bible. I was so moved by that might seem foolish. It's just written on a page. And Bibles are replaceable. It's not a big deal. Just bring it wherever you go. Just keep it in your backpack. I don't know. It wasn't foolishness to him. And though it was small and simple, he kept sacred things sacred. And I was grateful for that example. We need that caution because of what is said in verse 7. The Lord God doth work by means. That's the small means he referred to in verse 6. He works by means. That's how he does it to bring about his great and eternal purposes. By very small means the Lord doth confound the wise and bringeth about the salvation of many souls. Now that's an interesting insight into how God does things. He works by means, including the smallest and simplest of them all. Sometimes we assume that, well, it's God. He's great. His purposes are great. So of course the way he's going to accomplish those purposes will be great as well. All of his instruments must be incredible. Well, here's Alma who has said repeatedly, I got to be an instrument in God's hands. Well, I feel small and I feel simple. I feel foolish, in fact, and yet God uses me. Could God send an angel directly to every person to cry repentance? Yeah, and Alma kind of wanted to be that himself. But once he was content with what the Lord allotted him, he realized, I guess the Lord is willing to work through just mere mortals like me and like others from all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people. He'll just use stuff, means. Some people say things like, oh, evolution disproves the existence of God, to which I would respond, what if evolution is just one of the means that God uses to accomplish the purposes of his creation? Oh, the Big Bang disproves the existence of God. Well, if that's really how things happen, then couldn't it just be a means in God's hands? Some have tried to make a naturalistic explanation for all the plagues of Egypt, for example. Some kind of pollution in the, in the Nile that made it look red, and that forced all of the frogs to come out of the water, and they started infesting everything else. But then as the frogs start to die out on land, then that's going to breed lice, and that's going to cause disease to spread and plagues among things and flies will come to all this kind of just see it's just no natural to which i want to say okay that's fine god's gonna to have to use something if he wants to use means i'm totally fine with even naturalistic ones 
By the way, that doesn't explain some of the timing of those things. Like when Moses says, when would you like this plague to stop? That's not entirely naturalistic, right? But still, or like now when it's more like neuroscience and people want to say, is there some kind of God gene in there? Or is there a portion of the brain? Oh, your so-called spiritual experiences? That's just a dopamine dump, a serotonin rush. There's just chemicals in the brain that are causing those feelings. And there's a part of me that wants to say, okay, if that's the case, that's fine. It's just God using means because what is it that's causing those things to take place? You might be able to register some increase, but what is it that's bringing it about? You see, we don't believe in a God who created the world ex nihilo or out of nothing. He used existing material. So he really does work by means. And so for any of the more naturalistic explanations of divine events, I simply suggest that that is God bringing about his great and eternal purposes by means. He uses stuff outside us and inside us and everything else. It's like Jesus raising Lazarus from the grave, doing something only he could do, but then asking the mere mortals around him, would you mind moving away the stone? Yeah, could you help unwrap to take off the, the burial clothes? Let him breathe a bit. Well, surely you raised the dead. You can do all those things yourself. Well, yeah, but so can you. Or Jesus spitting in the dirt and making this clay and anointing the blind man's eyes. None of these things are actually going to give you sight. But I do work by means. And though they seem small and simple, that's all I've got compared to me. Though it seems foolish, that too is an unavoidable comparison when we have God at the other end. But even when it seems foolishness compared to other things we might consider, that's just God using stuff, working miracles by means. I'm grateful that even I get to be a means in his hands, like Alma, an instrument of his. Now in verse 8 and 9, he's going to keep talking about the scriptures. It's been wisdom in God that they should be preserved. And here's why. It's, here's why they've been kept, and here's why they must continue to be kept and continue to be kept sacred. Because number one, they enlarge the memory of this people. How many times have I told you to remember? Well, we wouldn't be able to remember without the help of these records. King Benjamin said the same thing to his sons. Without the scriptures, the Nephites would have been no different from the Lamanites. They would have forgotten God by now too. Second reason, scriptures have convinced many of the error of their ways. Remember, the Lamanites didn't think what they were doing was wrong because they didn't have the scriptures to awake them to those realities. The scriptures teach us of our shortcomings to then prepare us for the atonement. Third, they bring us to the knowledge of God unto the salvation of their souls. Keep going. Were it not for these things that these records do contain, which are on these plates, Ammon and his brethren could not have convinced so many thousands of the Lamanites of the incorrect traditions of their fathers. Yea, these records in their words, so here's the fourth reason they're so important. They brought them unto repentance. You see, not only do the scriptures convince us of our errors, they teach us how to repent and overcome those mistakes. That is, they brought them to the knowledge of the Lord their God, just like he said back in verse 8. But more than that, they brought them to rejoice in Jesus Christ, their Redeemer. That's what the scriptures are for, to help us remember, to convince us where we're wrong, to teach us repentance, to help us know the Father and the Son. Isn't that what Paul said to Timothy? That's what the scriptures are for? 
In 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's sacred. He's kept it that way. We need to keep it that way too. It's profitable for doctrine. How else are we going to know the Father and the Son? For reproof, for correction. How else will we know of our errors and be taught to repent? For instruction in righteousness. This is how we come to know truth. So keep them bright. Help them retain their brightness. Keep them sacred. And as you do, verse 10, who knoweth but what they will be the means of bringing many thousands more. And not only many thousands of the Lamanites, but many thousands of our stiff-necked brethren, the Nephites. I'm starting to wonder who had the better mission. All my buddies, the sons of Mosiah, going foreign to go teach and convert bloodthirsty Lamanites. Or me, stuck at home, trying to convince stiff-necked Nephites that the gospel is true. Well, the scriptures will be the means of converting or retaining or reactivating any of them, bringing them to the knowledge of their Redeemer. Now, verse 11, I don't know this for sure. These mysteries are not yet fully made known unto me. Therefore, I shall forbear. That's very humble of him and very wise as a parent and as a leader. Know what you know and testify of it, but also know what you don't know. Because sometimes what gets us into trouble are not the things that we don't know, but the things we think we know when we don't or claiming to know things that we really don't. He knew where to draw the line. Verse 12, what I do know, at least they are preserved for a wise purpose. The purpose is known to God. He counsels in wisdom over all his works. So I'll leave it in his hands. His paths are straight. His course is one eternal round. I don't know everything he's going to do with the scriptures. I know many of the things he's done so far, and they've been glorious. So I'll, I'll trust him with the rest. Verse 13, remember my son Helaman, God's commandments are strict. If you keep my commandments, you'll prosper in the land. It's the third time he said it to him. If you don't keep them, you'll be cut off. And so 14, now remember my son. God has entrusted you with these things, which are sacred, present tense, which he has kept sacred, past tense, and also which he will keep and preserve for a wise purpose in him, future tense, that he may show forth his power unto future generations. It's the scriptures that connect past, present, and future and which connect them to a God for whom past, present, and future are always before his face. Now from 15 to 20, Alma will continue to speak to Helaman about these scriptures, about keeping them sacred, warning him, don't transgress the commandments or you'll lose them. But if you keep God's commandments as pertaining to these scriptures, then he'll make sure they are preserved in your hands to accomplish the purposes that God has in mind for them. It's a great kind of continuation of what he's been describing in the previous few verses. But this is one of those passages that just gripped me in this set of scriptures when I was studying fatherhood. Again, he, this is a father teaching a son, but it was no longer about what a father was teaching. It was about what Heavenly Father was teaching me about the sacred things he was entrusting to me, namely my children. Shortly before becoming a dad in 2001, as I was reading and pondering this page, it struck me that what if all of these same things apply to the children that God is entrusting to me? I mean, think about it. Even in verse 14, remember, my son, God has entrusted you with this child, and that child is sacred. A child of God that he has kept sacred throughout premortality that he wants to keep and preserve for wise purposes throughout mortality so he can bring that child home in 
post-mortality. So read 15 through 20 as if God were talking to you about the people he has put in your life or that someday he will. Verse 15, I tell you by the spirit of prophecy that if you transgress the commandments of God, behold, these things which are sacred shall be taken away from you by the power of God to think of losing my children because I have not qualified to be their father forever. Is there a better motivation for obedience? Wanting to qualify for the blessings of eternal family? To keep my covenants with God so that he'll keep his promise that I can have my children, my family forever? Verse 16, if you keep the commandments of God and do with these things which are sacred, according to that which the Lord doth command you, for you must appeal unto the Lord for all things whatsoever you must do with them. I love that thought. How do I raise these children? Turn to me. I'll let you know. Appeal unto the Lord to know what to do with the sacred people God has placed in your care. If we'll do that, behold, no power of earth or hell can take them from you. For God is powerful to the fulfilling of all his words. What a promise to parents, especially parents of children who stray or struggle that if we will simply continue turning to God, appealing unto him to know, how do I reach out to this prodigal? Then no power on earth or hell can keep them from you in the eternities. What comforting words. Verse 17, he will fulfill all his promises, which he shall make unto you. For he has fulfilled his promises, which he has made unto our fathers. Confidence in the future because of God's proving himself in the past. Verse 18, he promised unto them that he would preserve these things for a wise purpose in him, that he might show forth his power unto future generations. We have proved him in days that are past, we sing, right? Verse 19, now behold, one purpose hath he fulfilled, even to the restoration of many thousands of the Lamanites to the knowledge of the truth. This is back to the scriptural focus. He hath shown forth his power in them, and he will also still show forth his power in them unto future generations. Again, past confirming the promises of the future. And then in 20, I command you, my son Helaman, that ye be diligent in fulfilling all my words, and that ye be diligent in keeping the commandments of God as they are written. Whether a prophet caring for the scriptures or a parent caring for a child, these promises fit beautifully in both contexts. I hope we can be diligent and fulfill God's words so that we can hold on to these blessings that we've been given. If ever there were a treasure worth holding keeping sacred. It's our own children. It's like when you get to the Jaredites and they couldn't hold on to their treasures because they became slippery to them. Same thing at the end of the Book of Mormon. The last thing I would ever want is for my own children to slip through my fingers. Too slippery for me to hold on to because I have not commended them to God. I have not kept them sacred as I must. Now starting in verse 21 and going through verse 32, he shifts his attention to a specific group of plates that we haven't spent much time with so far. He's been talking about the brass plates and the gold plates. Well, now he talks about, in verse 21, the 24 plates that the people of Limhi had discovered. This is part of that record of the Jaredites. It's all described originally in Mosiah chapter 8. That's the first time we see them. But in this passage, it describes some of the things that they contain, some of which should be revealed and others which should be concealed. You see in verse 21, these records contained mysteries, 
but it also contained the works of darkness and the secret works of those people, people who were destroyed. Now, Alma let his son know, you need to let the people know about their murders and their robbings and their plunderings and all their wickedness and abominations. Let that be made manifest unto this people. So they see what not to do, the results of iniquity. The fact that wickedness unrepented of leads to destruction, as he says in verse 22. But jumping ahead to verse 27, he says, but don't reveal everything. Reveal their wickedness and the results of their wickedness, but conceal, it says in 27, their oaths and their covenants and their agreements in their secret abominations. Conceal their signs and their wonders. Keep those things from this people, that they know them not, lest peradventure they should fall into darkness also and be destroyed. You see, in 29, he reiterates it. Keep these secret plans of their oaths and their covenants from this people. Only their wickedness and their murders and their abominations shall ye make known unto them. That way you can teach them to abhor such wickedness and abominations and murders without explaining all the nitty-gritty details of how they worked within that wickedness, how they led people into it. Just teach them the results, that they're destroyed on account of their wickedness and abominations and their murders. It's almost like if we were doing a, a history lesson on the atomic bomb at the end of World War II, for example. To try to teach the rising generation the dangers of that kind of escalation of violence. Well, would you rather show them pictures of the mushroom cloud or the aftermath in Hiroshima or Nagasaki? Or do you show them the design plans of how the bombs were actually constructed? Which one piques kind of a morbid curiosity like, whoa, how does this happen? How do I make this? Versus which one shows the cataclysmic results of this to the point of scaring us off from it, almost curing us of that curiosity. It's a careful balance that Alma is trying to help Helaman strike. Kind of like what we talked about earlier when he's describing his own conversion. How much do we say of our own iniquity versus generalities of I was fallen and needed to be redeemed? Remember, he said, I led many souls to destruction. He didn't tell his son, and this is how I did it. I told them this lie and then inserted this half-truth and then pressured them with this sort of thing. No, teach them the consequences of sin, but not the composition of sin. Show them the final picture, but not the floor plans. You see, what you really want to do, he sums up in verse 32. Remember the words I've spoken unto you. Trust not those secret plans unto this people, but teach them an everlasting hatred against sin and iniquity. That's the real goal, an everlasting hatred, not a morbid curiosity of what did all that wickedness look like? How did they keep it hidden from other people? How did they bring people in? We don't want their signs and wonders. We don't want their covenants and oaths. We want their final consequences, and we want to avoid them like the plague ourselves. Now, there's one other thing I'll say just briefly in the middle of that discussion of the Jaredite plates because it talks about interpreters that were included with them, because this would be a language that others would not know. Remember, that was Limhi's challenge. I can't read these things. And that was what Ammon had said, this other Ammon, about King Mosiah. He has interpreters. He has means, to borrow the language that Alma used earlier on in this chapter, means that look foolish to some. People in our day make no end of mocking the idea of seer stones or Urim and Thummim. Stone spectacles is what people called them in Joseph Smith's day and laughed as they talked about it. But in verse 23, he describes them. 
The Lord said, I will prepare unto my servant Gazalem, a stone, which shall shine forth in darkness unto light, that I may discover unto my people who serve me, that I may discover unto them the works of their brethren, yea, their secret works, their works of darkness, and their wickedness and abominations. Verse 24, my son, these interpreters were prepared that the word of God might be fulfilled, which he spake, saying, I will bring forth out of darkness unto light all their secret works and their abominations. I will bring to light all their secrets and abominations unto every nation. You see, he wants people to know what to avoid, not how to get into those mistakes, but how to avoid them and overcome them. And so not only did he preserve the record, but he prepared a stone that shines forth in darkness unto light. So some kind of seer stone, some kind of Urim and Thummim. And here in verse 23, he uses the word gazalem. Possibly could also be pronounced gazalim, since im is the plural ending in Hebrew, like urim and thamim. Actually, exactly what gazalem means is an interesting one. We're not even exactly sure what it refers to, because the way it's written in verse 23, it could refer to the servant, or it could refer to the stone. You could either read it, I will prepare unto my servant Gazalem, so Gazalem is the servant, I'll prepare for him a stone. In fact, in the original 1835 edition of the Doctrine and Covenants, section 78 of Revelation, well, what's now section 78, there's a verse that talks about Newell K. Whitney and Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon, but because of the persecution that they were all facing, when it was first printed, they used code names. And guess what Joseph Smith's code name was in that verse? He had two, actually. Enoch was one. He is trying to establish Zion, right? But the other code name he gave himself was Gazalem. Really interesting. God's servant that was given a stone to help him understand truth, to bring light out of darkness. The other way to read it is, I will prepare unto my servant, whether it's Joseph Smith or whether it's Helaman or whether it's King Mosiah II or Alma or whomever, I'll prepare unto my servant Gazalem, that is, a stone. So Gazalem or Gazalim could refer to the seer or the seer stone, either way. By the way, I won't get into it too deeply, but there's a fascinating resource online called the Book of Mormon Onomasticon. It's like a lexicon for proper names. Onoma in Greek is name, so onomasticon is like a lexicon for onoma, names. And some amazing scholars have gone through the proper names in the Book of Mormon and used their knowledge of ancient languages, whether it's Hebrew or Akkadian or Ugaritic or Egyptian, and tried to make sense of what might this name mean. There's some fascinating insights there, including some possibilities for Gazalem or Gazalim. Based on the Hebrew and the Egyptian and the Arabic, they've suggested it could mean a decider or determiner of fate. Interesting. Or another, combining the words for halves with a word for polishing or beauty. Interesting to think of this stone, and if it's halves, perhaps, a Urim and Thummim, I don't know. Or another possibility, combining the word for might with the word for young man. So perhaps if Gazalem refers to God's servant, a mighty young man in God's hands. Anyway, check it out. There's some interesting things there. But having taught Helaman what to reveal and what to conceal from the Jaredite record, he then spends a few verses on more general things like, as the mantle bearer, the one to lead the church in my absence, here's some things you need to make sure you teach. Remember, he said at the end of 32, teach them an everlasting hatred against sin. 
And that leads into some other things I really want you to teach. Verse 33, preach unto them repentance, like I just did in chapter 36 to you. Preach to them faith on the Lord Jesus Christ. Those two always come together, right? Faith unto repentance. Teach them to humble themselves and to be meek and lowly in heart, because that's the only way they'll turn to God. And in this beautiful phrase at the end of 33, teach them to withstand every temptation of the devil with their faith on the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's interesting. It's not just faith to repent of our sins, faith to repent of times we have not withstood temptation, but faith to withstand those temptations to begin with. I think there's an interesting dilemma for many of us that we have faith in the atonement's ability to overcome sin after the fact, but not beforehand. We seem to think that the atonement, God's grace, is curative and restorative, but not preventative. Mary and Martha were the exact opposite when Lazarus died, by the way. When they came to Jesus and they said, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. They only thought your power is preventative. It's not restorative. If you'd gotten here in time, you could have held back death, but now that it's already happened, it's too late. Well, for some weird reason, we've reversed that when it comes to sin, at least. And we tend to have faith in Christ's ability to forgive our sins. But do we exercise faith in him to help prevent those sins from the start? That if we are feeling tempted, place your faith in Christ. His ability to fill that hole with something better. So often it's a hunger for something. Well, let the Spirit fill it instead that you'll never hunger or never thirst again. You think you want this. What your spirit really craves is the love of God, and I will offer it to you. You won't be drawn to the darkness because you'll be surrounded by light. Have faith in God's preventative power. As Elder Brucey Hafen once said, the atonement isn't just to pull weeds. It's also to plant flowers. And if you'll fill your life with goodness, the devil doesn't have much room to work. As President Benson used to say, it's better to prepare and prevent than repair and repent. Wise words. Now, the grace of Christ applies to both parts of the couplet. But if we had more faith in Christ's power to prepare and prevent, then there would be less need for faith in his ability to help us repair and repent. Verse 34, what else do we teach? Teach them to never be weary of good works. You see, it was faith in 33. Well, what about works in 34? Not to earn salvation, but to reconcile our wills. To be meek and lowly in heart. There's that again. For such shall find rest to their souls. I love that he talks of rest in the same verse he talked about work. So often we tend to approach our works as if we were earning salvation. And no wonder we find no rest there. We're unprofitable servants, King Benjamin told us. We always will be. We have nothing to boast of. But if we'll have faith in Christ's redeeming power, and if we'll remain meek and lowly in his service, then no wonder we'll never be weary of it, because it's been restful all along. It's not anxious. Yes, we're anxiously engaged, but we're not anxious in our engagement. It's not anxiety that's driving us, because that does drain us. This is a calmer service, a less wearying work. 
Verse 35, O oh, remember, my son, learn wisdom in thy youth. Yea, learn in thy youth to keep the commandments of God. That's part of withstanding the devil's temptations. That's part of being anxiously engaged in good work. Again, bookending repentance with talk of obedience. Learn to keep the commandments. 36, yea, cry unto God. And then notice how many times he says all in the next few verses. For all thy support. Yea, let all thy doings be unto the Lord. And whithersoever thou goest, let it be in the Lord. Yea, let all thy thoughts be directed unto the Lord. Yea, let the affections of thy heart be placed upon the Lord forever. That is beautiful. Everything you do, everywhere you go, everything you think, everything you love, let it be focused on him. Did you see how many times he was mentioned in that verse? Unto God, unto the Lord, in the Lord, unto the Lord, upon the Lord. He is the object of every preposition. He should be that for us as well. 37, counsel with the Lord in all thy doings. Counsel with him. This is a beautiful combination of agency and inspiration. Do your homework. Come up with your plans. Present them to the Lord. Get his confirmation. Open yourself to his advice. But remember to provide momentum of your own for him to then respond with direction from himself. As we do that, he will direct thee for good. Yea, when thou liest down at night, lie down unto the Lord, that he may watch over you in your sleep. And when thou risest in the morning, let thy heart be full of thanks unto God. If you do these things, he shall be lifted up at the last day. So even at times you don't think you'd need him, like your sleep, still ask him to be with you, to watch over you. When you get up in the morning, be full of gratitude. He hasn't even done anything for you that day yet. Oh, of course he has, so much. But to approach the day full of gratitude, even before his promised blessings start to come. As the psalmist wrote, from the rising of the sun unto the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. You get that same sense here from Alma. Now from 38 to the end of the chapter, Alma then returns where he began, with a focus on scripture. The first was more literal, these plates that must be kept bright. Here at the end, it becomes more symbolic, using the liahona as his symbol. Now in 45, he'll make that connection clear. When I'm talking about the liahona, I'm really talking about the scriptures. But with that in mind, look for what he says about the liahona in 38 through 45, and think about the scriptures with what he's saying. In 38, he calls it a director, a compass, do we approach the scriptures in that way, trusting that they will show us the way to our destination? End of 38, he says the Lord prepared it. Do we see divine fingerprints all over the word of God? 39, there cannot any man work after the manner of so curious a workmanship. Yes, there are human fingerprints on scripture too, but they are not purely man-made. They were prepared to show unto our fathers the course which they should travel in the wilderness. And it is the scriptures that carried them through. Verse 40, the scriptures work according to our faith in God. If we have faith to believe that God can cause spindles to point the way, then it's done. If we have faith that God's word can show us how to live our lives, teach us how to be fathers and mothers, teach us how to repent of our sins, teach us of Christ and how to come home to him. If we keep sacred things sacred, then those things will keep us sacred in return. Notice also in verse 40, 
It wasn't faith in the Liahona they had. It was faith in God. Faith that God could cause those spindles to move. I love that they did not confuse means and ends here. I have faith in God, so I'll trust the Liahona. I have faith in God, so I'll trust the scriptures. It's the same thing way back in 2 Nephi, when the Nephites and Lamanites split. And who followed Nephi? The people who believed that God could speak through a prophet. It was less what they thought about Nephi and more what they thought about God. It's less what they think about prophets, more what we think about Heavenly Father. Less about the Liahona, more about the Lord. Less about the Word of God and more about the capital W, Word of God. Can he speak through Scripture? I have faith that he does. And so he does to me often. At least he does when I exercise that faith. You see, I remember once years ago wondering why my scripture study wasn't as powerful as it normally was. And I just happened to be reading Alma 37 during that time. And verse 41 and 42 struck me. Because those miracles were worked by small means. Just words on the page, right? But it did show unto them marvelous works. Now we're back to the small things bringing to pass great things we saw at the beginning. But they were slothful and so was I. They forgot to exercise their faith and diligence, and I had as well. There's both faith and works, and as a result, those marvelous works ceased. I wasn't getting the insight into Scripture that I had grown accustomed to. It wasn't filling me the way that I had before, because I wasn't filling my time or my efforts with the faith and diligence that I had previously. As a result, they, or me, did not progress in our journey. 42, they tarried in the wilderness, and I felt like I was stagnant in my spirituality too. They did not travel a direct course. I was just kind of wandering through lackadaisical scripture study instead of really getting somewhere. They were afflicted with hunger and thirst, even though I was surrounded with the bread of life and the living water the whole time because of their transgressions. That last word struck me too. Did it apply? I felt like it did because I knew better. I knew what scripture study could be, but my slothfulness was keeping me in circles, tearing in the wilderness instead of getting to the promised land. Verse 43, isn't there a shadow here, my son? As our fathers were slothful to give heed to this compass, now these things were temporal, they did not prosper, even so it is with things which are spiritual. So 44 and 45, he draws the parallel most clearly. It is as easy to give heed to the word of Christ, which will point you to a straight course, to eternal bliss. That's the goal. That's the iron rod that's bringing us to the tree, as it was for our fathers to give heed to this compass, which would point unto them a straight course to the promised land. Is there not a type in this thing? Just as surely as this director did bring our fathers by following its course to the promised land, shall the words of Christ, if we follow their course, carry us beyond this veil of sorrow into a far better land of promise. What a beautiful parallel. He then concludes this message to his son with 46 and 47. Oh, my son, do not let us be slothful because of the easiness of the way. It really is that simple. It was for them. It is for us. It was prepared for them. If they would look, they might live. So the Liahona was just like the brazen serpent. Have faith that it will work for you. The way is prepared. If we will look, we may live forever. 
So he sums it all up for his son, this wonderful soon-to-be general and prophet. And now, my son, see that ye take care of these sacred things. Or as we've learned already, take care to keep these things sacred. Yea, see that ye look to God and live. Look to God in these words. He's here to be found. He is in the word because he is the word. He's the word of life. Live in him. Go unto this people. Declare the word. Be sober. This is not a warning against alcoholism. Be sober. Take it seriously, son. Yes, these are means. Small, simple, and maybe even foolish. But they will bring to pass God's own work because God works through means. He's worked through me. He wants to work through you. So let him. Let him, my son. Farewell. I'm so grateful. I got to be a fly on the wall for that father-to-son conversation. I need to have more of those kinds of conversations with my sons and daughters. And as much as my own reading back in 2001 was meant to make me the father in these chapters, to be the son in them and allow my father in heaven to teach me these things about repentance and forgiveness, about scripture study and the power of God's word, what a blessing to have this message from our father.